that one. So. That's good. So what did you work on? Uh, like other classes. Oh, <laughs> e good answer. <laughs> <laughs> two exams this week. So. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Uh, I want to do The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, but I'm not sure. I mean, I want to do The Book of Hell. Hell and Hell. Oh. But I'm not sure Max does, but let's do the book of Phil. Um, what did you guys make of it? Well, our old friends from the Songs of Innocence and Experience are back. Which ones? Lily, Cloud of Clay. Mm -hmm. um, is there a sunflower? Or the cloud. And cloud. The cloud, yeah. Um, Does the lamb account also? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Has anybody made a claymation out of this? Um, <laughs> it's a great idea. It is. Yeah, it's a totally great idea. The format, I think it's just made to be made into claymation. The, pro the general problem with Blake is that if you want to do versions of Blake, you feel compelled to follow his visual um, his, his, his visual presentation of what he's doing, which you get some of in the Book of Fell, and I'm sure you guys... Are you guys on a site with the uh, plates or just with the poetry? Okay, because there's also... The problem with the Poetry Foundation is they don't have much, nor many notes, right? Are those hyper... Some of them are hyperlinked, but usually they aren't. Okay, so that makes things harder, especially when it comes down to writing papers and stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, work. <laughs> there is a site, there's actually a really great site that has almost, what they're trying to do is, is put up all the surviving versions of Blake's illuminated books, that is Blake's illustrated books where he did the illustration, and they differ from each other. Blake hand-colored them, and he would sometimes color them differently from one copy to another. So that's why it's worth having all of them, and there, there's a site that does that, that's trying to put them up. Again, though, uh, those sites actually have very good versions of all the texts. That site, I'll send you a link. That site has a very good version of all the texts separately. Maybe too good a version because it shows you every time Blake leaves a letter out, they'll put it in in brackets and things like that, and that can be annoying. But anyhow, I'll send you a link to it. So the Book of Fell then is, yeah, it would be a great claymation, but if you look at the illustrations... I mean, I guess you could do that. Could you do that in clay? Yeah, I think it'll be like very surreal. Yeah. How would you do the background in clay? Well, the background you could do with just the way you do any background in claymation, right? It's like the humanoid figures. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Just don't do it with Lego. Do you think of like Lego. Loving Vincent? Which I haven't seen yeah, it. Oh, I, it was, and I thought it would be horrible because they said it was like an animated film in yeah. oil paint. Yeah. That seems so stupid, but it was, yeah. it was beautiful. <laughs> it was a great movie. Oh, an animated film in oil paint? I really like that. What's it called? Love about Vincent Van Gogh. Oh, that makes it even better. So it's like it feels like maybe you could do a okay. movie with an Wait, sorry, what's it called again? Loving Vincent. Okay. Well, if you guys can do it this semester and sell it for at least $10,000, you'd all get A's and wouldn't have to write any papers.
Wait, sorry, we would yeah. get A's on all our papers? You what? wouldn't have to write any papers, and you would get an A in the class if you can do a project at least 15 minutes long and sell it for $10,000 or more. Oh. To sell it by the end of the yeah. make it? Make it and sell it, yeah. Okay. For 10000 so you, you got to go to a venture capitalist. Can you buy it from us? Can I? <laughs> I might bid on it if you have someone else bidding $10,000. we will have to see. All right. The Book of Thel, we looked at the motto and um, the potential sexual ideas within the motto. Does the eagle know what is in the pit or wilt thou go ask the mole? Can wisdom be put in a silver rod or love in a golden bowl? If you see the sexual imagery there, what is the force? Are those rhetorical questions, first of all? What's the answer? Does the eagle know what is in the pit? Presumably not, because the eagle flies above it. So you would ask the mole, which is to be preferred, the eagle or the mole? Is there, is, is there an implied answer to that? Yes. Which is? The mole. Is to be preferred to the eagle? Yes. That would be an unusual answer. The, <laughs> if you that? go into politics and you're in a debate with your opponent, I don't recommend saying, well, my opponent is a mere eagle, whereas I'm a mole. Because <laughs> you're never right. <laughs> yeah. Or you might win, but it would be strange. So, <laughs> the, it might, no, but you might be right about Blake. That is, it yeah, might be. Yeah, that's what I meant. That's what Blake is saying. That, in the case of wanting to know what's in the pit, the mole is, you, should, you shouldn't deprecate, disparage the mole, because disparaging the mole is a little bit like disparaging all the other innocent figures in the Veils of Horror. Is it something like that? It does seem a ferocious question, though. A little bit, it's got some of the ferocity of the questions in the tiger. Does the eagle know what is in the pit? No, the eagle is above that, right? Or will thou go ask the mole? Yeah, if you really want to know what's in the pit, you will be mole-like in attempting to see what's in the pit. Yeah. But I think it also, like, it's like the um, essay that the argument we talked about last week on there's no... Natural religion. religion? Yeah. And it's like there's no one point of view that shows us everything. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. we need... Okay, so what about the other two rhetorical questions? Can wisdom be put in a silver rod? That sounds very rhetorical. Yeah, so what's the answer? No. No. Or love in a golden bowl? No. So why silver and golden if they're not the place for wisdom and love? Why are those part of the rhetorical question? Do they have to do with wealth? What do you think? Uh, no, I make don't that make that a, make that a statement. <laughs> Maybe it's a rhetorical question, just like one of these. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it makes me think of the Merchant of Venice mm-hmm. when Portia has the cask, whatever. The three caskets. Yeah. And yeah. It's wisdom. It's like silver and gold, right? And it's like beautiful things aren't 
often in the other beautiful things. Right. Like, beautiful things are in ugly mm-hmm. things most of the time. You have to be attentive and mindful to see them. And it's the same as, like, wisdom is, like, is not equivalent to, like, a s- violence. Or, like, just because you have... Spare the rod and yeah, spoil the child, yeah. And it doesn't mean that you have wisdom. Yeah. Uh, like, might does not make right. Might does not make right. So the idea that wisdom is in a silver rod might mean something like that... How would you imagine, or how would you make the mistake, how unwise could you be that you would think that a silver rod was a source of wisdom? In a way, it's, it's not quite self-describing, but self-referential. That is, that the silver rod would be thought of as a place of wisdom, by someone who's taken in by a silver rod. It's a rhetorical question, but it's a rhetorical question which is also a test. That It's something like, I mean, I think this is the Merchant of Venice parallel, that the test is that if you think that wisdom can be put in a silver rod, it's you are showing that you're not wise. You are showing that you are, you are misled by the surface of things, misled by its apparent monetary value. There's uh, later Blake. Blake says, "Wish I could get this exactly right." The oh, can someone just look up uh, angels crying, "Holy, holy, holy," and Blake. Sorry, so what does it mean for wisdom to put in a silver rod? That if you think that that value, material value, money value, things that are precious metals are a sign of wisdom, they then you are unwise. That's not where wisdom is to be found. And it's not only that wisdom isn't to be found in a silver rod, it's that for those who look for it there, they are showing their unwisdom, just as those who look for Portia's picture in the silver casket or in the gold casket in The Merchant of Venice are not understanding what love is. If you think love can be found in a golden bowl, then what you're doing is you are loving money. You're loving metal. You're loving something because it is has material preciousness or material value rather than true love, which would be love for another person. So the very fact that those are, you could say, metallic, artificial, unreal, cold, inhuman versions of the anatomy of love, that love here is reduced to something robotic, even though the robots are made of special me- of, of, of precious metals, that's the sign that you are re- answering the rhetorical question wrong by answering it wrong. By thinking that wisdom is in a silver rod, you are showing yourself unwise. By thinking that love can be 
put in a golden bowl, you are showing yourself as someone who doesn't love. So the right answer to those rhetorical questions is no, wisdom cannot be put in a silver rod. No, love cannot be put in a golden bowl. And if that's true, if the answer to those questions are no, then, or wilt thou go ask the mole, sounds like the answer should be no as well. That it's the mole who might think wisdom can be put in a silver rod or love in a golden bowl. So does the eagle know what is in the pit? No. The pit would go with the bowl, right? The hollowed out declivity. And the mole who is looking into the pit is unwise. It would be unwise to look for things there. You should rather soar with the eagle. So did you find the holy, holy, holy? That means part of it's part of the poem, right? Yeah, so... Sorry, I should have brought my computer. Okay, look up... Sorry, can I borrow someone's computer for a sec? I won't snoop. <laughs> I should have just brought mine. It's amazing that That's actually really true. <laughs> I can't imagine a classroom without a computer. I really can't, yeah. Wait, so I'm confused as to whether the mole or the eagle is wiser. Well, what do other people think? The eagle. But only because, like, the mole is in the pit, and so the mole is like, hey, materialism. And we don't like materialism because we're romantics. So, okay. the eagle, therefore. I don't think in anyone, anyone is wise. I think you're both wise. They're wise in different ways. The eagle is wise because he can see things in the sky or whatever, and the mole because he's the only one who can see things underground that aren't that are the pit. So it's like each of them has their value and their limitations. At least that's how I'm seeing it. Okay, hang on. Let me just get this. But isn't that the suggestion that like mm -hmm. the mole is the one who thinks that wisdom can be found with someone? The mole is the one who thinks that love is in a golden bowl. So then, isn't the mole's perspective like not like not necessarily the mole doesn't have its own perspective? That's true. Mm -hmm. But like that, the mole perspective is somehow less than the perspective of the eagle, or like is more wrong. I don't know if that's the right word. I think the mole is experienced, right? Well, and also like that, the going off with the with the gold, it's like the mole is normally associated with like disgusting things. It's not the prettiest animal. How do you? Sorry, guys. How do you find in page on Windows? <laughs> uh, what are you asking? I'm just looking for holy, holy, holy on this page on the wiki code. Control uh, yeah, it's, it's I tried down, control. It's down in the oh, corner. it's down the Yeah, this computer's weird. Yeah, okay. but that's does that. All right, thank you. Like, yeah, what it looks like to be underground. No, like I don't think that's weird. Uh huh. You think that the mole. But I think there's also a somewhat negative implication about. Yeah. Because the things that we're asking the mole is like always answering the mole. Is there any negative implication of the eagle, though? No. Well, we don't talk about the eagle. Okay, so this is from A Vision of the Last Judgment. And here's, here's like, I assert for myself that I do not behold the outward creation, and that to me it is hindrance and not action. What? It will be questioned. 
When the sun rises, do you not see a round disk of fire somewhat like a guinea? So, that is, when you look at the outside world, don't you see a round disk of, when you see the, the sun rising, do you not see a round disk of fire somewhat like a guinea? What's a guinea? A bird. No. A coin. Do you know how much it's worth? No. Yeah, it's English money, especially English money before the change to a decimal system. Um, a guinea is worth a pound and a shilling, so it's 21 shillings. So, uh -huh. yeah, this is something you need to know in English literature. 20 shillings to a pound, a guinea is a pound plus a shilling, so, so if you have uh, 20, 20 guineas, you'll have 21 pounds, 12 pence to a shilling. So a shilling is 12 pence, and they're 20 shillings to a pound. So this will be on the exam. <laughs> you guys can't believe it. This is, this is what made England, figuring out how much things cost in England so hard, is people would say, well, if I have one pound, four shillings, threepence, and she gives me a guinea, two shillings, and nine pence, how much will I have? And then you really have to do each column separately and each transformation you don't just carry from one column to the next. That's why they went decimal about 30 years ago, maybe. So, no, it's, it, it's in, recent, in relatively recent history. Uh, England went decimal, partly so that they could join Europe, which seemed like a good idea to them at the time. <laughs> so, I assert for myself that I do not behold the out, outward creation, and that to me it, the outward creation, is hindrance and not action. What, it will be questioned, when the sun rises, do not you see a round disk of fire, somewhat like a guinea? Oh, no, no, I see an innumerable company of the heavenly coast crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I question not my corporeal eye any more than I would question a window concerning a sight. I look through it and not with it. So what the mole would see, or what the person who asks the question, when you see the sun, do you not see, when you, when you are looking at the sunrise, do you not see a round disc that looks like a coin? And it matters that it looks like a coin. If he said, do you not see a round disc that looks like the planet Venus or something, he wouldn't have said, no, no, no. But the idea that you look at outward creation as something completely outward, the, in a sense, what he's saying, and this is what he's critiquing, is that the perfect, thank you for this, the, save the page, you'll want it forever, the perfect <laughs> emblem of the outward is money is something, is metal, something that you can't use in any way for the soul or for the mind or for what's inside you at all. That it has value, complete value, for those who value that kind of thing, which is to say all materialists in the world. Everyone whose goal is to be rich, everyone whose goal is to be successful everyone who thinks money is a way of keeping score. And therefore, the materialist will see the sun and think of it as money. 
not literally money. It's not, oh, I can monetize that sun. It's that money is the image that the world appears to the materialist through. Or another way of putting it is to say that the outwardness, if you see the world as something completely outside of you, then all things that seem of value outside of you will seem of value because they will look like money. Whereas Blake sees angels crying, holy, holy, holy. And what he sees is not an outward value, but a value that sings to him and within him. And he looks through his eyes, as he puts it, not with his eyes. They are windows. They're not part of the outside world in which we which surrounds us and where we live. So for the for the mole, the pit is the outside world. The eagle flies above that, but the pit is the world that the mole lives in. And all the mole who is blind, he's blind or it's blind in the same way as the person who sees the sun as a, a golden disc that looks like a guinea. It's not literal and complete blindness, but it's blindness to everything but the surfaces, everything but the outer. So the silver rod, the golden bowl, the sun looking like a golden guinea, the mole exploring the pit where he lives, all of those are externalities empirical trash, as the philosophers call them. And it's the eagle who soars above that. In The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, which I don't know if you guys read for today, because you were, you were, the syllabus said yes, but I didn't assign it because we're doing the Book of Hell. The, but you should read it for Wednesday. One of the questions asked there is, how do you know but every bird that cuts the airy way is an intense world of delight closed by your senses five. So part of Blake's point is that if you only perceive what your senses are perceiving, that's the lock-in mode of perception, everything that your senses give you, if you only see what comes to you through, the, through your senses, you are only seeing external surfaces which are meaningless. If you see the truth, then you will fly like the bird cutting the airy way. Sorry, an immense world of delight closed by your senses five. You will you will fly like that bird or fly like the eagle. So it may be worth thinking about Thel's motto after going through through the book of Thel. The book of Thel is a is a strange book. It is a recapitulation of the Songs of Innocence and of Experience with possibly a suggestion of something more, or possibly not. The Book of Thel is where people start being getting puzzled and start arguing about what Blake is doing and what he could possibly be meaning. The, books, the, the, the Songs of Innocence and of Experience, they're fairly straightforward, um, but when you get to the Book of Thel, less so. So, the daughters of Ne-Seraphim led round their sunny flocks, so who Mene Seraphim is, we don't know. What that name comes from. Seraphim means what? Anyone? Yeah, they're the highest order of angels. It's a plural in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew plural. So the singular is seraph, the plural is seraphim, like cherub and cherubim, 
and the so somehow her name means flights of angels, flights of the highest angels. Um, the M N E in which seems maybe like an honorific, like Ms. or Mr. or something, and yet doesn't quite work that way. What could that mean? The daughters of Mene Seraphim that round their sunny flocks. Guesses? Do you ever see MN in English at the start of a word? What is it? MN, yes, I see all the time, but that's just not related to this. Okay. Do you ever see it as a beginning of a word? There is one word that you you guys probably all know that starts with MN. If you play Scrabble, you need to know this if you're looking for bingos. Menagerie? No, that's just ME. No, there's there's like a. Say it, say it. He said it. Mnemonics or demonic device? What's a mnemonic um, device? Like something that's used to remember something complicated. Yeah. So a mnemonic device is well, thirty days. Yeah, it is. No, that's pneumonia. You're thinking of pneumonia. No, mnemonic is M N E N O M I C, and it comes from the Greek goddess Mnemosyne, who is the goddess of you would immediately guess. Memory. memory. The goddess of memory. Her name is Nemosyne, spelt M-N-E-S-O-Y-S-O-N-Y-M-E. And she's the goddess of memory. And do you know who her daughters are? She has nine daughters. Is one of them Athena? No, not Athena. Say it. The Muses. Yeah, so memory is the mother of the muses, is... He said nine, so... Yeah. Well, there are lots of nines, but yeah, the muses nine, they're a big nine. Yeah, right, good. So it's kind of a mnemonic device, memory plus nine equals muses. It's not a mnemonic device, but it may as well be. So yeah, she's the mother of the muses, so the muses are the daughters of memory. The idea is that to be a poet, to be a scientist, to be a dancer, to be an artist, to do any of the, the, the arts and skills that the muses preside over requires learning and requires memory, and also that to write of those things, to tell those stories, to produce an epic poem, is to memorialize the things that you're setting down in your poem. That's what Homer says that he's doing. The muses give memory. The muses are the daughters of memory. They give <coughs> their memory to the poet. The poet writes it down in the epic or in whatever work the poet writes. So here seems to be some combination of the muses, the angels, the idea of memory, it's very suggestive. It's not clear how far you should interpret this or whether there is a, a difference here, as there almost always is, between interpretation and decoding. So one thing that you sometimes do when you're reading certain kinds of poems is you decode them. If you are reading Pope and Pope has a line 
with a has a has a name with a dash in it. You have to figure out what's in the dash, and it's not really that hard. You know, the dash stands for Shadwell, and there, what you've done is decoded something, rather than interpreted it in a broader sense. What a broader sense of interpretation would mean is something like the act of interpretation is part of the point, and there isn't necessarily a final meaning. The meaning is in the continual thought about it. So the daughters of Neseraphim, she is somehow like memory itself. She is somehow like the angels. This is assuming that she's a she, which I think we assume. She is somehow sponsoring all of these figures, and she's also somehow elusive, maybe the way memory is, in its difference from actuality. One philosophical question that's often asked is, how can we tell that something is a memory? How can you tell, for example, the difference between what you remember, a memory of the color red, let's say, and an actual color red? Because if you remember the color red, it's not quite red, right? So don't look at anything. There's nothing really red in the room. So just, rem it's not really red, is it? You wouldn't call that red. I wouldn't. What would you call it? I don't know. It's, it's, it's some kind of red mixed with mauve, mixed with, with some sort of clay thing. It's not, it's not red. Okay, that's red, yeah. I was going to say, that's, that's definitely red. Really? That? Definitely? Yeah, well, no, okay. you're at the S on that. Uh, that's okay. red. Yeah, this is red. That's red. red. What? Like red is like a large umbrella category. Yes, it is, but but you still wouldn't take that as your example of red if you were doing a cut. If, if 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 you said, bring me a red, bring me the reddest piece of cloth in that pile of cloths and there was red like that and red like that, you wouldn't expect someone to bring that or that, right? You're talking about, like, cobalt red, like, like, like fire like truck red. red. Yes, okay, fine, fire truck red. Yeah. Isn't that what we mean by red? Okay, so just think of a fire truck, because that's not fire truck red, right? <laughs> so think of a fire truck. Now, if you saw a fire truck, would your memory of a fire truck that you're having now be as red in memory as the actual fire truck that you looked at? No. Does everyone agree? If you looked at a fire truck, obviously, it's going to be redder than the fire truck you're thinking about. How do you know that if you're not looking at one? How could you possibly know that? Because you can, if, I, if you're thinking of a fire truck and remembering a fire truck, how are those things different from each other? so that you can say, oh, my memory of a fire truck isn't as bright as the fire truck I'm thinking of. Because I think we do all think that, right? That a real fire truck would be redder. I mean, I can see it now. It's redder than a fire truck I can remember. But all you're doing is remembering a fire truck when you do that. Because you're like kind of remembering the experience of seeing a fire truck. As, like, the experience of seeing a fire truck is being wowed by its redness. And then just thinking about red itself. So are you, can you wow yourself a little bit by remembering being wowed? 
I feel like I can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a strange fact that if we remember a fire truck, it's somehow less red than what we know it is, and yet knowing it is somehow seems to have something to do with remembering it. Yeah. For me, it kind of seems like the memory fades. Yeah, but how would you know that? As, as time passes, <laughs> so it's only like a suggestion. Yeah. I feel like memory is more of a suggestion. Yeah, but a suggestion of what? It's like you can tell in your mind yeah. that your memory of something isn't as bright as the thing you're thinking of. But couldn't that be like a learned thing? Like you've often remembered something and then you experience it again and you're like, wow, that's not the same. I know, but do you think that's what's happening right now when you think of a fire truck? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, Maybe. I don't think it is. Also, I mean, so there's a couple ways to look at it. One of them is the way you're saying, like, uh, the learned thing, right? The more you think about it, the sort of the further it gets. It, I don't remember where I read it or if I read it or just thought about it, but it was something where, like, you don't so much remember the last time you saw a fire truck, you remember the last time you thought about the last time you saw it, and that just keeps adding more separation, so it's hard to remember the details of the actual event, you just remember the memory of it. Yeah. So that could be sort of where... Yeah, it, like, as it, like, but... I think we've all like had that experience where you like go back to a place you haven't been for a really long time. Like details are different than you yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah. And so then, like, but we've learned that that's true. So then we just assume all of our memories are a little bit wrong. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And and we do do that. And one way we can prove it to ourselves is by actually thinking of a fire truck and seeing how much brighter it is than our memories of the fire truck. And I think we do that. And 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 it's just worth noticing that somehow we're, our memories of red somehow are not bright the way red is, and yet we can, if someone were, we know that if someone were to say, okay, so think of the faded red of your memory, you can think of that also, and it might be the same color as your memory of a fire truck, but you know it wouldn't be the right color for the fire truck. So think of, remember the color of a fire truck, and now think of that color in your memory. That is, think of the remembered color of the fire truck. And it's a lot less bright than the color of the fire truck that you're remembering. There, I mean, there are ways of talking about this, but the point would be that if memory takes the form of trying to go deeper and deeper into something, it's not just that you have like a photograph of the remembered thing or a, a, a reproduction of the remembered thing which is as bright as the original, and yet somehow by thinking and interpreting and going deeper and deeper and deeper, you can think about the brightness of the original even as you don't simply have it there as something to decode. It's not like you can bring it up onto the screen of your mind and there it is, as bright as the first time you took the picture. It's not decoded, but it's something you dive into. And that idea of interpretation is, I think, really crucial to Blake, that you don't see a round disc like a guinea, round like a guinea, when you see the sunrise. Of course, I mean, I think this is exactly what Blake is thinking about. Think of a sunrise, and probably the literal visual image that you're having is not that different from the literal vi visual image that you would have if you were thinking of a gold coin. 
I mean, obviously, it's somewhat different, but in a lot of ways, it's not different. It's not that if you think of a sunrise, it's gonna, you're going to remember it literally as brighter than a gold coin. It's not your memory isn't going to be brighter than your memory of a gold coin. Maybe your memory of a gold coin is brighter than your memory of a sunrise. I think that would be true for me. I've seen gold coins in museums, and they're highly polished, and they're under intense light. And, you know, sunrise, that's when the sun is easy to look at. And it's round like a gold coin. It's round like a guinea. So that the difference between a sunrise, the visual image of a sunrise and a guinea, in memory art is not that much. In reality, of course, but in memory, not that much. And if there's not that much of a difference in memory, what makes a sunrise a sunrise and not a golden guinea? And the answer for Blake is that the sunrise is angels singing holy, holy, holy. That is, that it's everything. That it yields and opens world upon world upon world. Not something decoded where one can stand for another as, as something encrypted stands for the original and the original is in a symmetric relation to the encryption, but rather, which I know it isn't, that's not where we're going, but rather that it opens itself up, it flies. If you want to explore the pit, then be like the mole. But if you want to keep going, then be like the eagle. What the eagle knows is not, in a sense, anything or perhaps in another sense, it's everything. The eagle flies above all things rather than knowing single things. So the daughters of Neseraphim, of memory, of the angels crying, holy, 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 led round their sunny flocks. So they're shepherdesses, flocks of sheep. And so they are somewhere where shepherdesses are leading flocks of sheep around. And um, that sort of place is is generally a place of innocence, like in the Songs of Innocence. It's a place where the world is what's called pastoral. All but the youngest. So who's the youngest? Yeah, so all but Thel herself. Do people know what Thel might mean? Do you have it in a footnote anywhere? Anyone know what the Greek... Do you, have any of you read, read um, T.S. Eliot? It's the, they ask the Cumian Sibyl who is in a cage, what did she want? And she said, apothonatain thelo was her famous answer. The, the story is told in Latin. I think in Seneca, but I'm not positive. And she answers in Greek, apothonatain fellow, is what she says in Greek. Is this at all familiar to people? So it, what she says is, I want to die. Apothonatain means to die. And fellow is a Greek word meaning I wish. So the book of Thel might then be the book of what? Wishing. Of wishing. Or, or Thel may be the person who wishes. So, all but the youngest, she in paleness sought the secret air to fade away like morning beauty 
from her mortal day. What do you think that means? Yeah. She wants to die, but not in a, a way that's painful. She, like, um, reminds me of the end of Faust, right? Yeah. Right? Like, he wants to be a drop in the ocean. Yes. Yeah. So she wants to fade away, to disappear, to fade away like morning beauty from her mortal day. She knows she will die. She's mortal. That's the first thing that we know she knows, is that she's mortal, and she seeks the secret air. Beautiful phrase. Again, probably not one to be decoded, but one to be interpreted. The secret heir to fade away like morning beauty from her mortal day. Why would she seek the secret heir to do that? Yeah. She doesn't want anyone to know. She doesn't want it to be a big deal. She just wants to, like, die. die and yeah. Then, like, it's like if I, I died and then, like, life was just normal for her. <laughs> yeah. And I never came to class and, like, and my, I never went home and, like, life was just normal for everyone. Okay, yeah, so good for others, but maybe also what, what Max was saying about just becoming, to quote Shakespeare, becoming indistinct as water is in water, which Goethe might have been thinking of. No, that, oh, sorry. Sorry, I think yeah, no, no, no. not Faustus. Yeah, um, I feel like there's a similar image, but yeah, um, Faustus in Marlowe. The idea is that the secret air would be maybe how Thel would evaporate into dew, would become, would be like dew, which is what she's about to say of herself. Thel is like a drop of dew. And the idea would be not to be wiped away, not to be trod upon, but to disappear into the air. Painlessly. And if, sorry? Painlessly. Painlessly, yeah. It's also really nice that there's so much mourning imagery in a sentence about death. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, down by the river of Adana, her soft voice is heard. And so, that's a made-up river, Adana, but it refers probably to the story of Adonis, of Venus and Adonis, and Adonis is the source of a river when he's wounded, he then becomes the source of the river. I th um, think of the Tigris of the Euphrates, but I don't remember. I think the footnote doesn't say. So the, here's a river like that. So down by the river of Adana, her soft voice is heard. Probably Blake is also thinking of one of the etymological sources of Adonis and one of the connections with Adonis, which is Adonai. Blake knew a lot of Hebrew. He learned a lot of Hebrew. He was fascinated by Hebrew. So the river of Adonis is also, like Ne Seraphim, a reference to Hebrew religion where Adonai means anyone? God. God, or literally the Lord. So the river of the Lord down by the river of Adana, her soft voice is heard, and thus her gentle lamentation falls like morning dew. And she sings, again, you shouldn't have quotation marks here, but, O life of this our spring, why fades the lotus of the water? Why fade these children of the spring? So notice that beautiful repetition, O life of this our spring, why fade these children of the spring, born 
but to smile and fall. Ah, fell is like a watery bow and like a parting cloud, like a reflection in a glass, like shadows in the water, like dreams of infants, like a smile upon an infant's face. Notice again the repetition of infant that he's doing there. We saw a little bit of this in To the Evening Star, the repetition of the same words within a line in that unrhymed sonnet. Let thy west wind sleep on the, on the lake, sleep now. So she's doing something similar in these 14-syllable lines. So like dreams of infants, what song would that remind you of? Infant Joy. Infant Joy, yeah. And also Cradle Song, because we have a dove's voice, which is... Right, good, good. Like a smile upon an infant's face, like the dove's voice, like transient day, like music in the air. So that's what Thel is like, like a rainbow that's going to disappear, a cloud that's parting, reflection in a glass, shadows in the water, infant's dreams, music in the air... And then a kind of prayer. Ah, gentle, may I lay me down, and gentle, rest my head, and gentle, sleep the sleep of death, and gentle, hear the voice of him that walketh in the garden in the evening time. So who is it who walks in the garden in the evening? Oh, the person who walks into the... Is this the same as the person who walks into the Garden of Love? No. Oh, that's nice. I went to the Garden <laughs> of Love. It's, it's, God, it's God in the Garden of Eden, or the Lord in the Garden of Eden. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's in Genesis that in the cool of the day, the Lord walked in the garden, and he called for Adam and Eve. So his voice is heard in the garden in the evening time. So she asks this question, or what she, why did all these things fade? Why fade these children of the spring, born but to smile and fall. So all these figures of innocence, you could say, and I'm like them too, and I fade and die. And then we get an answer. So who's the first answer from? The lily of the valley. So, Nicole, read what the lily of the valley, lily of the valley has to say. The lily of the valley, breathing in the humble grass, answered the lovely maid and said, I am a watery weed, I am very small, and love to dwell in lowly vales, so weak, the gilded butterfly scarce perches on my head. So the lily is so weak that she can barely hold the butterfly up. So the butterfly doesn't like landing on lilies because they will bow and fall, even if the butterfly lands on their heads. Go on. Yet I am visited from heaven, and he that smiles on all walks in the valley, and each morn over me spreads his hand, saying, Rejoice, thou humble grass, thou newborn lily flower, thou gentle maid of the silent valleys and of modest brooks. For thou shalt be clothed in light and fed with morning mom- manna. What's manna? Magic. Uh, no, that's with one end, actually. Isn't it the bread that fell from heaven on the Israelites? Yeah, so in Exodus, when the Israelites complained of hunger while they were in the wilderness, they were given manna every day to, to pick up and gather, and twice double portions on Friday so that they would have manna for Sabbath, for Saturday. And they were told not to pick up more than they needed for the day, but of course they did pick up more and got into trouble. 
but manna is manna from heaven is a saying that you'll frequently hear, and it means a gift of God, a nutrition that is simply provided by God. And here, that's what God is doing for the lily. Um, do you remember what Christ says about the lilies? I didn't say about the birds. Um, but it's the same passage. Yeah. But even the birds of the air, yeah. they don't have to worry about who's going to feed them or what they're going to eat, so why should you worry? Right. And do you remember what he asked you to consider among the lilies? Consider the lilies. Not familiar to people? Consider the lilies in the field, how they grow, the toil not, neither those things. That's the one. Good memory. <laughs> yeah. So consider the lilies of the field, they to- how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin, yet I say unto you that Solomon... I don't know, I don't know. Oh, okay. okay. That Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed as one of these. So that Solomon in all his glory is not as beautiful as, is not as well provided for, is what Jesus says, as the lily of the field. That is, the lily is provided for by God, and uh, lilies don't have to work to be provided for by God in heaven. So that is one of the things that we're supposed to be hearing here, Thou gentle maid of su- rejoice, thou humble grass, thou newborn lily flower, thou gentle maid of silent valleys and of modest brooks, for thou shalt be clothed in light and fed with morning manna. God will take care of you. Keep reading, Nicole. Till summer's heat, till summer's heat melts thee beside the fountains and the springs to flourish in eternal veils. So what will happen to the lily? It'll die. And go where? To heaven. Flourish yeah. in eternal veils. Yeah, so it'll be a lily in heaven where it will never die. Flourish in <clears throat> eternal veils. Go then, on. Then why should thou complain? Why should the mistress of the veils of Har utter a sigh? So, I'm, so the lily is basically saying I'm confident that what God tells me is true, which is that when I die I'll go to heaven. And there will be eternal happiness like the happiness that I'm feeling now. So why should the mistress of the veils of Har, that's who Thel is, and it turns out where she is, the place of all this shepherdessing, is a place called the veils of Har. Who Har is is not clear, but... It feels, in some sense, like he's a father figure, and in some sense like he's a king, and in some sense like we don't know whether to trust him or not. But at any rate, what we do know, because it's the last words of the poem, is that the veils of horror is the veil where she lives. There may be some sense of horror in the word horror. It's not, it's not obvious that there isn't that there's something there which is, which is scary or bothersome or not what it seems. The idea of going to heaven, remind, uh, that everything will be okay because you'll all go to heaven, what song of innocence? The sweeper song. Yeah, the chimney sweeper. 
So if all do their duty, then they do not feel harm. Feels of harm, maybe. Maybe. No, I'm not sure. <laughs> Don't decode, but notice the suggestiveness of the interpretations. So she ceased and smiled in tears and sat down in her silver shrine. So the lily is sitting in her silver shrine. She's smiling in tears. And Ryan, what did Thel answer? <clears> Thel <throat> answered, O thou little virgin of the peaceful valley, giving to those that cannot crave, the voiceless, the overtired. Thy breath doth nourish the innocent lamb. He smells thy milky garments. He crops thy flowers, while thou sittest smiling in his face, wiping his mild and meeking mouth from all contagious taints. Thy wine doth purify the golden honey. Thy perfume, which thou dost scatter on every little blade of grass that springs, revives the milked cow and tames the fire-breathing steed. But thou is like a faint cloud kindled at the rising sun. I vanish from my pearly throne, and who shall find my place? Thank you. So, what were you going to say? Oh, nothing. I just really liked the... Um, which thou dost scatter on every little way of grass that springs and revives the milked cow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, so what is it that the lily has that Thel doesn't? Why is Thel thinking that the lily's fate is not her own? Why does Thel understand the lily's acceptance of that it's reasonable, that it's right for the lily to feel that her position is okay, but Thel doesn't feel the same about her own. The lily plays a role. Yeah. Helps out the creatures around. Yeah. Is nourishing. Yeah, so the lily is part of things, and her existence matters. But Thel doesn't see what, what her existence is doing. Thel is like a faint cloud kindled at the rising sun, I vanish from my pearly throne, and who shall find my place? So I'll be gone, and I won't have made any difference at all. So she's depressed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it, the question is, why is she depressed? And the answer is something like she's depressed because she's a human. She's depressed because she is, as the... As Heidegger puts it, she finds herself in a, well, as Walt Stevens puts it, but it's a Heideggerian idea, in his great, great poem, Notes of the Supreme Fiction. From this, the poem springs that we live in a place that is not our own and much more not ourselves. So we find ourselves here and where we find ourselves is a place that's not our own, to which we don't entirely belong. And it's the not belongingness, it's the feeling that the world is a place of exile, uh, a place that we don't belong. That is what Thel is saying. The lily says, I'm okay because I belong here, and everything I do is good, and I hear the voice of God, and I go to... When I die, I promise that I will go to heaven and live like this eternally. And Thel wants to belong. For her, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And she has all these amazing similes 
Fell is like a drop of dew. Fell is like a morning cloud. Fell is like all these things. But she isn't because she doesn't belong to the world as part of its being the way all these things that she's like do belong to the world. I love how that's made clear because she's like compares herself to a cloud and suggests that she thinks of herself as a flower. Um, and then the similes talk back. And right. then the flower's like, well, no, this is actually what it's like to be a flower. You're yeah. not like a flower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so first she says, um, oh, life of this our spring, why fades the beans in the water, why is thou like this? And then all the things that she thinks of herself as being like speak to her. So I'm just like a parting cloud. I vanished from my pearly throne, and who shall find my place? The lily answers, Max? Queen of the veils, the lily answered. Ask the tender cloud. Or you might want to say, ask the tender cloud. <laughs> so you, you, want to, you say you're like a cloud? Okay, talk to the cloud. <laughs> and it shall tell thee why it glitters in the warm sky, and why it scatters its bright beauty through the, hum the humid air. Descend, O little cloud, and hover before the eyes of Thel. So, that's beautiful, why it's bright beauty, why it scatters its bright beauty through the humid air. All of these are things that could apply to Thel as well, and yet somehow they don't. So keep reading the cloud. Um, the cloud descended, and the lily bowed her modest head, and went to mind her numerous charge among the verdant grass. O little cloud, the virgin said, I charge thee, tell me, why, why thou complainest not? Why, uh, sorry, I charge thee, uh, I charge thee, tell to me why thou complainest not when in one hour thou fade away. Then we shall seek thee, but not find. Ah, thou is like to thee. I pass away, yet I complain, and no one hears my voice. So, thou is like the cloud, and she wants to know how the cloud, why it's okay for the cloud, to be doing, to be disappearing as thou does. You don't you fade away in an hour and yet you don't complain. I pass away, yet I do complain. So I charge thee, tell to me why thou complainest not. I pass away, yet I complain, and no one hears my voice. So again, Thel's difference, it's a little bit like the rhetorical questions, which is that what's my question is why am I different from you? And how do I know that I'm different from you? Because I'm asking that question, which you're not. Because I'm asking the question, why am I fading away? Why am I complaining? Why is this something that matters to me? And if you say, yes, I'm just like you and it doesn't matter to me, that doesn't help. Because the thing for Thel is that it does matter. And what makes her different from everyone else is that it does matter. Notice that her passing matters? Yeah, that her mortality matters, that what you have here is a figure who feels the transience of things and feels that with extreme poignance that everything fades away. Were you going to say something, yeah. Olivia? Well, is it almost like a rejection of her individuality? Like, she vanishes and who shall find my place? Like, there's no object or whatever that's the same as her to replace her. Yes. And she's upset that she's irreplaceable. 
I guess. Like, I don't think that's quite right, but like she seems to be like almost as if because there's there's no one to replace her, that means that her existence doesn't have a meaning or isn't essential. Or it's that whatever is first person about her existence doesn't matter. That's what's bothering her. That if you are replaced, then if you're the lily or the cloud or or the clod of clay or any of the other beings in the veils of horror, they'll be you're doing your part, and when you die, there'll be other lilies and clouds and clods of clay, and you've done what you're supposed to do. If but what Thel wants to know is what about the me part of that, not the. And we don't know what Thel is except maybe a shepherdess or the queen or, or the princess of the garden or something like that. But it's the me part that she doesn't understand why that disappears. And having doing her part, that's the her part of Thel. That Thel is in the garden and she belongs to it and she does what she's supposed to do as the lily does and the clod of clay does and the cloud does and the worm, all of those are things where they fill a role, but for Thel, it's who it is that's filling the role. It's the, it's the first person, it's the subjective part, rather than the third person from outside part. Maybe, yeah, so, I mean, my thought with that is that maybe it's not that there's no one to replace her, but that there's no one to remember her, right? Once she dies and is not there, then that's the first person, like you're saying, is gone, and it's, I think it's, I mean, it's a hard thing to handle, I think, right? Yeah. But it's, I think, that not being remembered, maybe, that is her issue. Or that there's no her to remember her, even if she is remembered. It's what, there's no her for that to do any good to. That is, I, if I'm gone, who shall find my place is something like, have I been forgotten completely, or do I still have a place in the memory of people? That's the most obvious reading. But if I'm gone, then where am I? Then there is no place that I am. And so even if I'm remembered, it's not I who am remembered, it's Thel who's remembered. That's the first way she describes herself as in the third person. Oh, Thel is like a watery dew um, and like a fading flower. Actually, that's not the first way, but um, when she says that, she's describing herself in the third person. But it's the disappearance of the first person, the disappearance of the pure I that the mind or the soul or the spirit or the psyche is, that's what she doesn't understand. So, what does the cloud say, Megan? Well, so it's, it's, oh, little cloud the virgin said, I charge you tell to me. Notice that she's picking up the word charge from what the lily has done. The lily has gone to mind her numerous charge among the verdant grass. What does charge mean in that line? The lily went, the cloud descended and the lily bowed her modest head and went to mind her numerous charge among the verdant grass. Are you guys hearing the meter of that, by the way? 
and went to mind the her numerous charge among the verdant grass. Fourteeners mm -hmm. um, are about as long as we can hear in English, our fourteen-syllable lines, and that's what these are. They're a very old English form that Blake is reviving. Yeah. Like something that she's supposed to take care of. Like yeah. Someone like a child. Yeah. So yeah. in this case, it's her sheep. Her, well, the lily probably doesn't have sheep. It's oh, probably, oh, the lizard makes the lily. Never yeah, mind. it's all the things that the lily does. That is, that she revives the milky cow and she tames the fire-breathing steed, um, and uh, that she does provide a place for the butterfly to land, uh, even if the butterfly can scarce do, the, do it. Um, so charge is a word that you will often here applied to nursemaids and to teachers so uh, and to camp counselors. Their charge is the younger people, the children, that they are supposed to take, be taken care of. So who does that make the lily sound like? The caretaker. The, the caretaker or the, nurse. the nurses in the nurses' songs. So, again, it's a kind of uh, um, remembrance of the songs of innocence and of experience. Wait, this was pre-Darwin? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yes, not only pre-Darwin, but pre-Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, who was a, po a scientist who did his science in poetry. He wrote a famous poem, not that bad, called The Loves of the Plants. So it's I saw one. That in a footnote somewhere. Oh, really? Yeah, and I was wondering who that was. Yeah, yeah it's Darwin's grandfather. You had referenced Darwin's grandfather several times in the, last the 18th semester. century. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like he's touching, or Blake is touching on ecosystems. Oh yeah. Before the word ecosystem was ever invented. Yeah, yeah. And the human is the only person that doesn't really matter in it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. Um, the idea of. Poetry and eco ecology is a big thing now, uh, medium to big thing now in English, professional English literary theory and criticism, and lots of it is, is attentive to the Romantic poets who are thinking about ecological issues before the concept of ecology. Industrialization and the relation of things in nature to each other and, and so on. So, okay. Yeah, so pick up, Megan. With the so cloud um, that showed his golden head. And his bright form emerged, hovering and glittering on the air before the face of Bell. O virgin, knows thou not our seeds drink of the golden springs, where sit in Bell? Yeah. Again, first time we see that name. Yeah. Um, he'll appear a lot in Blake, but right now, this is what we know about him. Where Luba doth renew his horses. Okay, so a little bit complicated there, but essentially 
the cloud is brought from the golden springs, that is from water, where Luva doth renew his horses, whoever Luva is, but seems to have some relation to love. Look on me, I'm young, but don't be fearful because I vanish and am seen no more. That's what you worried about. That fellow's like a cloud that disappears, that vanishes, I vanish from my pearly throne, and who shall find my place? Here I do too. Fearest thou because I vanish and am seen no more? Nothing remains. O maid, I tell thee when I pass away to see tenfold life, like the lily, when I pass away to see tenfold life, to love, to peace, and rapture is holy, unseen descending. So how is the cloud descending unseen? Into rain. Into rain or into water vapor is probably what Blake is thinking of here. That is that the cloud disappears into the air as the day warms up. And court the fair I do. And court the fair I do. So becomes part of the dew or courts the dew at night when the vapor in the cloud becomes the dew on the flower upon the balmy flowers I court the fair I do to take me to her shining tent that's a beautiful image again you can't quite literalize it I don't think but court the fair I do to take me to her shining tent that is to to consummate our love of the cloud and the dew to take me to her shining tent the weeping virgin trembling kneels before the risen sun till we arise linked in a golden band and never part so how did the dew and the cloud arise then they all belong to each other yeah but also they're dried up by the sun and they go up into the air so so this you can make semi-literal which is that the cloud turns into dew or joins with the dew and then the sun rises before the risen sun the sun rises the dew dries but how does dew dry it's turned into water vapor which is then brought up into the air and we arise linked in a golden band that would be obviously love but also the sunlight itself that is causing them absorbing them into the air you know don't just say drying the sun dried up the dew that's not the way the cloud and the dew see it they see themselves as arising linked in a golden band and never part but walk united bearing food to all our tender flowers how are they doing that well, because they're watering, they're, they're producing water for all the tender flowers of the veil. So again, it's a beautiful, beautiful image. If you want something to compare to Pope, as you did last week, this is Blake's version, you could say, of the sylphs in The Rape of the Lock. That is all these gorgeous supernatural versions of natural phenomena, all of these tender, caretaking versions of things that we don't think about. But here it's the dew and the cloud coming, marrying and watering the flowers. That's what he's describing here. Uh, Want to pick up from there, Ariel? Dost thou, a little cloud? So this is now Thel, Thel answering the cloud. Dost thou? 
I fear that I am not like thee, for I walk through the veils of heart and smell the sweetest flowers, but I feed not the little flowers. I hear the warbling birds, I feed not the warbling birds. They fly and seek their food, but tell the licenses no more, because I fade away, and all shall say, without a use, the shiny woman lived, or did she only live to be at death the fruit of worms? <laughs> yeah, so all of these things feel that they're part of something bigger. And they're all transforming into each other. That's another way of putting it, is the transformations that makes one turn into something else. The cloud turn into dew. The dew turn into water vapor. The water vapor turn into flowers. The flowers turn into steeds and into um, bullocks and cows. And all of these things are part of a cycle. But Thel is not part of that. Did she only live to be at death the food of worms? Is that what she's going to turn into? The food of worms. So That's a good thing. Well, that's what the cloud is about to say. <laughs> right, Olivia? Read from there. Yeah. The cloud, the cloud reclined upon his airy throne and answered thus. That's such a great line. The cloud reclined upon his airy throne <laughs> and answered thus. Go on. Uh, then if thou art the food of worms, O virgin of the skies, how great thy use, how great thy blessing. Everything that lives, lives not alone, nor for itself. Fear not, and I will call the weak worm from its lowly bed, and thou shalt hear its voice. Come forth, worm of the silent valley, to So, food of worms metaphor, but then the cloud says, no, talk to the worm. Um, you'll see that that's okay, too. Everything that lives, lives not alone, nor for itself. That's what the cloud is saying, that everything is part of the cycle. And you can talk to the worm and see that, that it's part of the cycle also. In the marriage of heaven and hell, this will turn into the phrase, everything that lives is holy, which doesn't mean the same thing, but is clearly connected or related. Everything that lives is holy. So keep going, Olivia. The, um, the helpless worm arose and sat upon the lily's leaf, and the bright cloud sailed on to find his partner in the veil. So the cloud's done. <laughs> he sails on to find his partner in the veil, which is the dew. But here's the worm, and the lily's still there, so the worm sits on the lily's leaf. Um, uh, yeah, just read a little bit more. Um, then thou astonished, viewed the worm upon its dewy bed. And what did she say? Art thou a worm, image of weakness? Art thou but a worm? I see thee like an infant wrapped in the leaves, lily's leaf. Uh, weep not, little voice, thou canst not speak, but thou canst weep. Is this a worm? I see thee lay helpless and naked, weeping. And none to answer, none to cherish thee with no So suddenly Thel feels sorry for the worm. The worm's supposed to answer her, so says the cloud. But the cloud gets it wrong. It just kind of goes away. All right, so go talk to the worm, right? Um, and um, thou shalt hear its voice, says the cloud. But she doesn't hear the worm's voice, or if she does, all she hears of the worm is that it can weep. And I see thee lay helpless and naked, weeping, and none to answer, none to cherish thee with mother's smile. So here is something genuinely sad. Who else is able to weep but not to speak in the Songs of Innocence? The chimney sweeper. The chimney sweeper. When my, my tongue scarce could cry, weep, 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 weep. So there's the worm, and Thel feels sorry for it but 
the worm doesn't cherish it with mother's smiles, but luckily there's the clot of clay. So pick up from there, Tafara. <clears throat> the clot of clay heard the worm's voice and raised her pitying head. She bowed over the weeping infant and her life exhaled in milky fondness. Then on, tell fixed her humble eyes. O oh, beauty of the veils of R, we live not for ourselves. Thou seest me the meanest thing, and so am I indeed. My bosom of itself is cold, and of itself is dark. So if you just look at me, I'm just a clot of clay, cold and dark, of itself, if, if you take me alone, go on. But he? But he loves the He lowly. that. But he that loves the lowly pours his oil upon my head and kisses me and binds his nuptial bands around my breast and says, Thou mother of my children, I have loved thee and I have given thee a crown that none can take away. But how this is, sweet maid, I know not and I cannot know. I ponder and I cannot ponder, yet I live and love. So the clod of clay would be nothing except that God calls the clod of clay the mother of my children. So how's the clod of clay the mother of God's children? It feeds everything. Yeah, everything grows from the clay. What is Adam made of? Clay. Oh, really? Yeah. In yeah. Genesis. <laughs> Sorry? Really? <laughs> <laughs> be a reference to like more Greek mythology where the mother of the gods is Gaia which is the type yes of yeah and she's the, she's the earth uh, if you ever take the later romantics the po the great poetic drama Prometheus Unbound has earth as one of the characters and she's the mother of all and in particular the mother of Prometheus but the mother of all. So, okay. Oh. And then those oh. great lines, I ponder and I cannot ponder. I know not and I cannot know. How this is sweet made, I know not and I cannot know. I ponder and I cannot ponder, yet I live in love. So they're all accepting these things. The worm can't speak, but the clot of clay. These are all beautiful and lovely and helpful beings. And yet... They're okay with not being able to ponder. They're okay with not being able to know. But Thel feels like she can ponder and should be able to know. So, want to pick up from there, Nicole, the daughter? The daughter of beauty wiped her, her pitying tears with her white veil and said, Alas, I knew not this, and therefore did I weep. That God would love a worm, I knew, and punish the evil foot that willful bruised its helpless form, but that he cherished it with milk and oil I never knew, and therefore I, did I weep, and I complained in the mild air, because I fade away, and lay me down in thy cold bed, and leave my shining lot. So, I so now we're about to get a turn in the poem, which we'll pick up on Wednesday, but read the marriage of heaven and hell for Wednesday also. But notice that here it feels like Thel is she's impressed by the clot of clay. The worm can't speak, but she knew that God would love a worm, and what she didn't know is that it would be cherished with milk and oil, and that she 
wept because she would have to join with the clay. She would be buried in the clay, in the pit. And I complained in the mild air because I fade away and lay me down in thy cold bed and leave my shining lot. That is, that I get buried. Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. You were made of clay, and you will return to the clay that you were made of. And I complained about that, but when I see that God loves the worm and cherishes it with milk and oil and does that through you, then I wonder about my complaint. And what we'll see then is the clay answers her. That's where we'll pick it up on Wednesdays. The clay's answer to Thel at that point, and then the strange thing that happens next. So, Marriage of Heaven and Hell, then.